Welcome to the first JAMSPOD episode brought to you by the Joint Academic Microbiology Seminars and Inspiring New South Wales. This is your host, Lucy Semenek, and producer Amy Kane. And today in our National Science Week special, Meeting Your Friendly Neighborhood Microbiologist, we'll be speaking to distinguished professor Ian Paulson from Macquarie University in New South Wales, Australia. Hi, Ian. Thanks so much for joining the show. It's our first podcast. Thanks, Lucy. You know, I'm always happy to be a guinea pig in an experiment. So let's see how we go. So I just want to start off by introducing you more formally to our audience. You have quite a diverse and impressive background in microbiology, but also in the fields that surround it, such as genomics and synthetic biology. You always seem to be involved on the cutting edge of science. In the early days of your academic career, you were discovering biological mechanisms of multiple drug resistance to antibiotics. In the 1990s, during the genomics revolution, when the sequencing of the first human, bacterial, plant, and fungal genomes were conducted, you were heavily entrenched in this and working at one of the world-leading sequencing facilities, the Institute for Genomics Research. In 2014, you were awarded an Australian Laureate Fellowship for studying marine bacteria and their importance in the marine food web. That year, you were also awarded the Distinguished Professor Award at Macquarie University in recognition of your renowned work in genomics, systems biology, and environmental microbiology. At the end of 2019, you were awarded to lead the Center of Excellence in Synthetic Biology at Macquarie University. And just recently, you've been elected as a fellow to the Australian Academy of Science for your pioneering work on transporters, some of which confer antibiotic resistance in bacteria. Having said all that, can you tell us a little bit about your research and what sort of burning questions you're trying to answer with microbiology? Okay, well, I, I think you've left me nothing to say. I'll, I'll do my best. So I guess I, I, over the entire career, what I've really been interested in is trying to understand why bacteria are where they are and what they're actually doing. And so some of that work has been looking at pathogens in hospitals and trying to understand how they've become antibiotic resistant, how they become multi-drug resistant and what can we do about that. I've also studied bacteria in sort of their natural environments, for want of a better word, looking at, you know, microbes in the soil, microbes on plants, microbes in the ocean, microbes that live on coal seams and turn it into coal seam gas and just trying to understand what they're doing in these environments and how can we you know, make use of them in different ways. And then most recently, I've gotten into synthetic biology where we sort of try and learn tricks that one organism does and move those together in different combinations to create organisms that can do new things that no natural organism can do. Great. That's really exciting. So you go pretty much around the entire planet trying to find organisms that do things for us. And you're one of the few microbiologists that has moved from bacteria to yeast, which was quite a change. Can you tell us about that? I'm sure you, I'm sure yeast has always been close to my heart, being <laughs> someone who likes bread, baked goods, wine, beer. I just hadn't researched yeast until recently. But when we wanted to get into synthetic biology, yeast just provided a great uh, vehicle for doing that. You know, it's a, a very robust industrial organism. It's the best characterized eukaryote. And there's the opportunity to join this international consortium, Yeast 2.0, aiming to build the world's first synthetic yeast. And so it's just sort of the stars aligned that yeast seemed like the, a great choice then to push forward with uh, synthetic biology. Um, can you give us a little outline as well of your career trajectory from, you know, your undergrad days up until where you are now and any highlights you had along the way? Okay, that could take the entire podcast. Yeah. <laughs> In a nutshell. <laughs> so I started as a under, little undergraduate student at Monash University, and I, I started as a combined 
I didn't know if I wanted to do science engineering. So I started doing a combined science engineering degree. And after the first year, I decided I hated uh, engineering and I, and I loved science. So then I just dropped back to uh, science. And I had originally intended to major in chemistry, but I tried microbiology in second year and loved it and then decided I, what I really wanted to do was be a microbiologist. Um, and I started a PhD at, at Monash and one year into my PhD, uh, my supervisor moved from Monash up to the University of Sydney and I didn't want to abandon like a year's work. So I followed him and it was, it was probably the best thing for my career because I was part of, at Monash, I was part of a big group of, you know, about 15 or so researchers and I was like the new PhD student. So I was like low person on the totem pole. When I moved to the University of Sydney, uh, only three or four of us moved up. So I went from being, you know, the one person amongst others who knew, you know, the least of probably of any of anyone in the group to all of a sudden I was the expert in that area. And and then so all the new people who joined the group, I trained them, all the projects that were ongoing at Monash, I sort of had my pick of, oh, oh this bit of this bit project and this bit of this project. And, um, and I think in the end I wound up getting about 20 papers out of my PhD. So that set me up. After that I moved, I, I got... Uh, funding from the National Health and Medical Research Council that took me over to UC San Diego, and that was um, an interesting experience because I worked with a very uh, colourful individual there, uh, Melton Sayer, who is a brilliant scientist with you know, almost a thousand papers published. But you know, he also hasn't worn a pair of shoes since the 1960s, um, and you know, scavenges through garbage dumpsters for food. So it was a bit of a culture shock. Um, moving there but uh, it, it all went well and then around that time the first genome sequence started to come out from tiger and I, I happened to be at the american society for microbiology conference in 1995 where the first genome sequence was presented and i was like oh my god that's amazing i, I can't believe they they did that and so that it, it inspired a passion i wanted to get into genomics and um and i managed to parlay that into that interest into an actual faculty position at the Institute of Genomic Research where I got the opportunity to lead a range of microbial genome sequencing projects. And then as sequencing costs dropped and it started becoming essentially democratised, you know, next generation sequencing came out, I then felt I no longer needed to be at a sequencing centre to do genomics. And when the opportunity came up to move back to Australia, then I moved back up to Macquarie and uh, set up my own group here. And that's where I've been since 2007. You clearly had a passion for microbiology very early on, but do you remember as a child when you started being interested in science and did your parents see this interest in you? I was a tremendous nerd. Um, I loved science. I read science fiction and fantasy. I liked everything science-y. And, you know, I, it, the surprise is that I didn't wind up becoming a geologist or an astronomer because I, you know, I made my parents buy me a telescope so I could you know, do amateur astronomy at home. I made my parents join a rock and mineral club because I wanted to go and collect gemstones and minerals. Um, I collected insects. I, you know, as, you know like every nine-year-old boy, I love dinosaurs. Uh, so I think I was, always had a passion for being a scientist. So we just wanted to hear some of your favourite things in microbiology. I sort of told you how I'm a bit of a nerd uh, from a young age, and I've also been, always been a gaming nerd. You know, I love board games and role-playing games and puzzles. And to me, trying to understand how microbes do what they do is sort of like the ultimate puzzle. Uh, and that's one of the things that got me really excited by genomics. You know, here's sort of the complete blueprint of an organism. Can I then actually work out how it does what it does from this uh, you know, list of parts? 
This is a question from the audience. Um, can you tell us which microbe is your favorite and, and why is that? So, um, yeah, I, I, I guess I don't play favorites. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've worked on so many Very different cool. organisms at different, at different times. Uh, I love them all. Can you tell us about one of the funniest things or several of the funniest things that have happened to you or a colleague in the lab? This is a question from our audience. Sure. So when you're an honours student, you've got a very limited amount of time to try and get results for your honours project and to try and do well in it. And so that means you tend to work crazy long hours, you know, into you know, 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. And one of my friends is doing honours and... Um, when you're visualizing DNA, you put the gels you run the DNA on on a UV transilluminator, so the UV light will make the DNA glow because of the dye that's bound to it. And so my friend at two or three in the morning was cutting bands of DNA out of this gel on this UV light box, and uh, I guess he was really tired because he fell asleep in the middle of it. Um, wow! And he was wearing goggles to protect his eyes um, from the UV light, but otherwise he just fell asleep on. With his face on the UV light box, and when he woke up, he had this the worst case of sunburn you've ever seen oh on one side of his face, and then he had big white rings around his eyes, so he sort of looked like a raccoon, um, <laughs> and he looked like that for a, for a, for a couple of weeks. So yeah, everyone uh, had fun. So this is a little bit related to this question. Uh, do you have? A, a memory of anything dangerous happening in life? Well, let me tell you about this radiation spill. So uh, this is when I was working in the lab at uh, University of California at San Diego, and we're doing various work with radio-labeled compounds. And there would be a routine testing of the lab where you'd swipe things and run them across a Geiger counter to make sure there's nothing radioactive. And one week... The routine testing happened and it detected radiation everywhere. It was like 100, 200,000 counts at this one spot on the floor, and then everything was hot. The doorknobs, everyone's shoes, there was radiation all through the lab. And the, the university radiation safety officer informed us that this was the third worst radiation spill in the University of California's history. The second worst radiation spill in the University of California's history wind up with a building being encased in concrete, I believe. And I don't actually know what the worst one was. So. <laughs> That's classified. Best, yes. <laughs> Best not to ask, I guess. But anyway, what, so for the next two weeks, we all wore little paper booties and disposable lab coats and basically scrubbed clean the entire lab and, and, and everything that had been in the lab. So it was, uh, oh, that's exhausting. Traumatic. It's crazy. Another... Question along these lines, because you work with bacteria as well as yeast, but mostly the bacteria, have you ever infected yourself from the lab? Considering that health and safety standards weren't what they are now. <laughs> Actually, probably the most unsafe thing I ever did in the lab is when I was an undergraduate student, uh, they advertised a poorly paid research assistant position in a research lab, and I thought, oh, that's great. I, you know, I'll get a chance to do some research. And they, they got me in the lab, and one of the first things they got to do was they got me to do a phenol chloroform extraction um, uh, to clean up DNA that had been purified out of, a, out of a bug. And they did this without actually telling me, instructing me properly or instructing me how to do it safely. And so you'd normally wear gloves and things like that. No, I was just doing it in bare hands. And at the end of it, my hands were totally covered with phenol burns. Mm -hmm. that, um, and then 
the other the other way I answer this question is with regards to infections. I have never had a serious infection from anything I've been working on, but I had a colleague in the US that I was collaborating with, and we were doing the genome sequence of uh, Brucella suis, which is a dangerous pathogen that's actually a potential bioterrorism agent, and in, back in the 1950s was weaponized by the US military as a, as a biowarfare weapon. And, and so my colleague had worked on this for years or decades even. And one at one point, his family went away for a week to his wife and kids went away for a week. And uh, and he must have come down with an infection from Brucella suis because his neighbours found him wandering delirious in the street in his underpants with no completely incoherent and you know they rushed him to hospital and he was actually out of action for with this infection for like uh, two or three months. Wow! I'm glad that we wear gloves and coats. A long career in science. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose we'll eventually see crazy things like this. Hopefully not. So science is a very long process. It comes with a lot of work and many frustrating moments. Um, but we always hear this, you know, sort of stereotypical, I suppose, thing called a eureka moment. Have you ever experienced a moment where you were like, eureka, I found it. Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I, I think I've experienced, I've not experienced one, oh my God, Eureka moment where I've actually yelled out Eureka. <laughs> but I think I've had like a hundred small Eureka moments where I've suddenly thought, oh my God, I've worked this, oh, it, it does this, it works this way. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's actually better, I think. Because <laughs> I like more sustainable. Story. I like the story of Arkham. Of Archimedes, Archimedes, yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Just ran down the street naked, screaming. Yeah. Okay, so I guess we want to just learn about your life as a scientist now. Uh, We've talked about your lab experiences, but your day-to-day is a bit different now as a professor. Do you ever get bored at work, Ian? Um, The only time I I would say I ever get bored is when I'm doing uh, administration. So... I run a research group now of about 40 researchers, staff and graduate students. So that keeps me tremendously busy, but most of it's tremendous fun. You know, I consider myself lucky in being able to say I get paid to do something I love and I love coming to work every day. Um, but yeah, I like the science, but I don't like you know the bureaucracy and paperwork that sometimes accompanies it. Yeah, definitely. Is it difficult as a microbiologist or a scientist in general to find a good balance between work and your life. Um, for example, do you think do you think that you work nine to five or I, I don't think I've ever at any point in my life worked nine to five. Sometimes I've worked less than nine to five. Most of the time I mm-hmm. I, I haven't. But I do believe work life balance is important. Um, and you know, my escapes tend to be gaming or watching Netflix or things like that. Um, if you, you you can't sustain a, you know, 20-hour work days indefinitely. But often in science with grant deadlines or things like that, you need to do that. When I've spent much of the last two years writing and working on getting this Centre of Excellence funded and the number of 3am emails and whatever people cut from that is probably frightening in, in retrospect. I guess the other thing is in this sort of day of constant electronic communication, it's challenging to 
put down work and, and go away. And I remember being on vacation with Phyllis in uh, Portugal and I was spending an hour or two every day doing email until she suddenly, you know, basically confronted me and said, what the hell, Ian? We're on vacation. <laughs> Leave the email alone and come to the beach with me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that definitely happens to us for sure. It's it's hard with yeah Twitter and emails just always being there. So, but it seems that you've got a good influencer in your life to tell you when to stop. <laughs> so that's that's really great. Um, also, I've noticed in a few meetings that uh, your cats are often with you. Have cats influenced your science at all? Um, well, I, I, cats often carry toxoplasma infections, and toxoplasma <laughs> is supposed to affect your uh, you know risk takingness and things like that. So. Maybe they've inadvertently uh, affected me, but I am a I, I'm I only have two cats because I was told um, that that if I got more than two cats, that would make me a crazy old guy with cats. Um, so I've tried to limit myself there. But uh, my undergraduate students can attest to the fact that pretty much every PowerPoint presentation I give has at least one gratuitous cat photo in it somewhere. <laughs> and actually, now that you mention it, there are studies that show that owners of pets share microbiome strains with with their pets whether they be dogs or cats oh wow that's really interesting Mm. so ian do you often collaborate with other types of scientists in your work and what are the different fields that they're in which are the most challenging i think yeah okay good questions um so i do like to try and collaborate with other um with scientists from other disciplines partly because i believe that the coolest science is done on sort of the overlap between different disciplines, but it's challenging. Um, I've worked together with chemists and physicists and engineers. I think they're all challenging in their own ways, but just to tell you one story, we started this collaboration with some laser physicists and we had these real trouble in meetings where I didn't understand anything they were saying and they didn't understand anything I was saying and and there wasn't even shared concepts. So at one point they're showing me some data and I asked, how many, how many replicates have you done? Because ordinary in biological science, you'd do everything in triplicate to be convinced that it's real. And they're like, replicates? Why would we do replicates? Apparently in physics, you do something once and you've proved it. Wow, I didn't know. That's crazy. <laughs> should move fields. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's important for you to find that middle ground and it's often difficult to do. So what were your strategies to try and find that middle ground? Did you have to sort of give them a crash course in biology and vice versa? Uh, I, I think we just wound up trying to give each other the dummy's guide to our respective science, scientists. But uh, all collaborations in, in my mind, are it's about interpersonal relationships. And, it, and if, if, if you're collaborating with someone who is just an ad, <laughs> you won't keep working with them. That's very true. Yeah, no, I, I even definitely if the don't si- Even if the science hat. you're doing is really cool. But. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a fair point. And I, think, I agree with that. Yeah, a lot of good scientists are good communicators as well. So. Yeah, I think nowadays we sort of have to be. So I'd like to sort of t- take things into a bit of the future and, and what's happening right now. Has this SARS-CoV-2 pandemic affected your work at all as a scientist and, and how so? Um. Yes and no. So it certainly affected my research group. Um, I myself am probably, you know, I regard myself maybe at the moment as one of the luckiest people in the world in the sense that I have a job, 
I can work from home. I can work from home very effectively. And so, you know, all intents and purposes, I personally haven't been affected as much. And I sort of feel guilty in saying that, knowing the people who have suffered terrible losses and who have lost jobs. Um, I, I'm fortunate in that respect. What I am aware of, though, is it certainly impacted my research group. Our lab was not totally closed, but sort of half closed for much of the last three months. And that's impacted students and staff, um, you know, and, 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 you know, PhD students are worried that they won't be able to complete their PhDs before they, um, you know, before they, their scholarships run out. And they're also, you know, and, and the ones who are close to completing are really worried that, you know, they're not going to be able to get jobs once they finish their PhDs because, you know, you know it's hard to travel over, uh, overseas at the moment. And, you know, there's not many jobs, you know, funding's tight everywhere and there's a lot of uncertainties, um, yeah, definitely. In regards to the pandemic, where do you think that will be a year from now? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think anyone really knows the answer to that. And I think that the $10 million or maybe the you know, $100 billion question is, will we have an effective vaccine against COVID-19? And there's you know more than 100 different efforts underway to develop a, a, a vaccine, but we don't know if any of them are going to be effective. Uh, and it, and you know, it, normally it would take years or even decades to develop a new vaccine, you know, with the amount of resources and and new technologies, maybe we can fast track that, but maybe we can't. Um, and there's certainly any number of other viruses for which there are no effective vaccines despite years or decades of research. So if there is not an effective vaccine developed, then we're going to be in this weird twilight zone sort of indefinitely of trying to manage this this now endemic virus without where if we ever take our foot off the off the brake of trying to you know use social distancing then we're going to see out- outbreaks so it's yeah it's a it's a very uncertain time yeah definitely and i mean i don't want to be too doom and gloom here but after covid what is the next super bug that you think is going to come out as a pandemic um yeah so i i think there'd be concerns about other viruses you know big pandemic fear for probably the last 50 or 100 years would be a, a you know a new highly virulent strain of flu and i think that's uh, you know always going to be a concern in the longer term i think we've got to worry about the emergence and and and, and proliferation of multi-drug resistant bacteria in hospitals where they're now becoming so drug resistant that we're being left with very few drugs left to combat them and without effective antibiotics that puts much of modern medicine in danger you know without being able to give people prophylactic antibiotics you can't you know that rules out most of surgery for instance um so i think that's a real concern for the future it's probably not going to be just one microbe it'll be all of them do you think that this draws more attention to science and scientific research and gives us more hope for the future to to increase funding for research well, I, I'm always an optimist, and I guess I'm always a techno-optimist, and I hope that science will you know, help solve all the world's problems g- given time. Um, it's interesting that in the West, there's sort of been a long a decade or two of you know, gradual cutbacks to science, whereas in China, you've seen you know, just massive increases of funding to science. So while globally or while in the West, funding has certainly just 
been cut. I'm, if we added the numbers up, I suspect globally scientific funding has probably increased over the last 10 or 20 years, given other countries' increases in, in scientific funding. We're being reminded of how important science is to solving these world problems. I, I, I think COVID-19 provides a, just a, a, an excellent but sobering example of how listening to scientific and medical advice has real impact in the world where countries that have practiced social distancing and good practice have mostly kept COVID-19 under control, like in Australia and New Zealand, um, whereas in other countries that will remain nameless, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is basically running wild and causing untold uh, deaths and tragedy. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's definitely a sobering reminder of why we need to continue research. So I have one last question for you, Ian. Can you tell us what the world would be like without microorganisms or perhaps even microbiologists to study them? So I, I can answer that very simply. If there were no microorganisms on Earth, there'd be no life on the planet. Um, you know, photosynthetic bacteria were responsible for the original oxygenation of Earth's atmosphere. And, you know, bacteria were the original ancestors of life on the planet. So, yeah, without, without the microbes... There is no us. There is no us. Great. That brings us to the end of this interview. I'd like to thank you again, Ian, for your time here. We really enjoyed talking to you and getting to know you. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Amy. It's been fun.